0: Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org slash seminars to find a seminar in a city near you.
1: Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is William A. Thornton, Ph.D., P.E. Dr. Thornton received his bachelor's degree from Manhattan College and his master's and doctorate degrees from Case Western University in Cleveland. Bill started his career as a professor at Clarkson University before accepting a position as chief engineer at Seveys Steel Company where he has remained throughout his career. Dr. Thornton has over 50 years of experience in the area of structural analysis and design and is a registered professional engineer in 22 states. Dr. Thornton served as Chair of the AISC Manuals Committee for over 25 years and also serves on the AISC Specification Committee and the Research Council on Structural Connections. He is the author or co-author of over 60 published papers in connection design and related structural areas. He is the winner of AISC's 1995 T.R. Higgins Lectureship Award and in 2003 he was awarded the AISC Lifetime Achievement Award. Thank you, Bill, so much for taking the time to do this interview with me. I have been looking forward to it for a long time.
0: So have I. It's been uh, delayed for quite some time, but finally we've gotten together to do this.
1: Yes. Okay, so I'm just going to jump right in here. Your father was in the construction industry in New York City. Was that your motivation for going into engineering?
0: That was my motivation for going into the industry, but my father was sort of insistent that I that I do that because he felt that engineers were like gods on construction jobs. He started out in construction himself way back, and he started out as a as a, I think a, some kind of a helper, an electrician's helper, way back, probably in the 20s or 30s of the last century, and he, he, he became a bricklayer, and he was really good at that. But he realized that when he got older, it wasn't going to be really possible to do bricklaying, so he ultimately took the civil service test for New York City building inspector and passed it, and then became a, a construction inspector. And by the time he retired in about 1970 or so, he had reached to be chief inspector, the number one guy in in one of the five boroughs of the of the city, the Bronx. Uh-huh. Back in probably 1956, 55, 58. I really didn't want to go to college. I mean, the neighborhood was such that everybody was out running around, they were making money, they were in construction, they were carpenters, they were, you know, doing all sorts of things. And when I was in high school, my father, since he was an ex-bricklayer, had gotten me into the bricklayer's union. And by the time I was 18 or 19, I was almost a journeyman bricklayer, and I could go out in like 1958, 1959, and probably make something on the order of five bucks an hour, I think it was, it was, it came out to be five bucks an hour for for say 40 hours a week is that about uh 200 and something dollars a week Mm -hmm. and that was good bloody money
1: so how how did he convince you that you were going to college you know
0: bill you're not going to be able to do this when you're 40 years old you know you're going to be old before your time you need to get something that uses your mind instead of your back and so he insisted that i go to college
1: So once you got there, were you glad you went, or did you just do it because he wanted you to? I did
0: it for the first year because it was my father's desire that I do it. And I really didn't want to be there. And as a result, I didn't do very well in my freshman year.
1: And where'd you go, your freshman year?
0: Manhattan College. And uh, my father pulled some strings with the, it's a Catholic school and he pulled some strings with the, dio- the diocese and uh, got the dean, Brother Amandus Leo, to grant me an interview. <laughs> I just about flunked out. Maybe you don't want to put all this in here, I don't know.
1: <laughs> no, this is a great story. But
0: Brother Amandus Leo, I think, was an ex-football player. I mean, he was, oh man, he was rough and gruff and you didn't, didn't mess with him. So he got me in there and he said, Thornton, I'm only talking to you because your father's pulled some strings. Maybe you're not smart enough to be here. We can always fill your seats. You know, you don't want to work. We want you out of here. But I'm going to give you another chance just to see what you can do. I said, yes, sir. Yes, brother. Okay, fine. And I came out of there and said something like, which I really can't say, but you, S.O.B., I'll show you. And so from that point on, I decided I would do it. And I I mean, I started, I think, just about dead last in my class of like four or five hundred. All guys, old, no girls in these, mm-hmm. these classes then. And I finished in the top quarter. I mean, starting at the, at the bottom, I mean, it's hard to get in the top quarter. Yes. But that was good enough to get into graduate school. But anyway, to come back to this bricklaying job at a couple of hundred bucks a week, like in 1958, the first job I got, engineering job, was with Howard Needles, Taman and Bergendorf, New York City, 99 Church Street, summer of 61. I came back from Case after my first year, so I had one year graduate school. I had maybe a year to go to finish up my master's, and they said, you know, we'll give you a good job, $120 a week. <laughs> Believe that? $120 a week. That was a good salary in 1961. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I didn't go with them. I stayed on. Got uh, to like the academic kind of activity and got my PhD at that mm-hmm. Case in 1967. Went all the way. All the way.
1: So then you started your career as a professor at Clarkson University. What events transpired that brought you into the practicing side of structural engineering? How did you decide to leave academia?
0: Well, before we do that, when I was a graduate student, my major area was aerospace. My masters and PhD theses were on contracts that were sponsored by NASA, designing uh, nose cones and uh, re-entry vehicles and stuff like this. Really kind of nice structural mechanics stuff. And probably the best offer I got was with one of those companies, but I really wanted to try the academic route because I. Did Ph.D. That's sort of like the union card, as they call it. At least they did to get a teaching position at any four-year engineering school. You really, even then in 1966, 67, uh, they weren't hiring anybody without a without a Ph.D. Any place that I know of, except maybe you know a two-year school or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I did that. I went there and I, I got a, a whole bunch of grants. I had graduate students, and uh, you know I was uh, I was a, kind of a hero at uh, Clarkson at that time. You know, one of their producers. And I got tenure after a few years. I think it was, I don't know, three or four. But after that, I don't know. I just, I got involved with surveys. And they had some problems. And I I enjoyed doing that, the consulting. But the consulting wasn't really thought well of by by the school because it's not bringing any money in. Mm Mm-hmm. I spent a sabbatical at Surveys, their northern division, in 1974-75, decided I didn't like it, went back to Clarkson, wrote a whole bunch of proposals with a guy in the ME department, we were doing optimization of mechanisms, which is sort of like the kind of stuff that I did, structural optimization. This was mechanism optimization. But we didn't get, we wrote lots of papers, published them, but we didn't get any research. And so after a while you kind of realized that you're, you know, unless you can get some more research, you're going to be, I think, a second-class citizen at most of these schools. And I started thinking of what else I might do. and. Surveys was there. I mean, they, in, back in 78, after I spent the year there, this is a couple of years later, they really offered me a job I couldn't refuse. The original job that they offered me was in northern New York, but this was to be chief engineer for the whole company, hmm. and that had some possibilities. So I did jump at it.
1: So you left?
0: Left to the North Country and moved to Atlanta. To
1: Atlanta in 78 to work for Surveys.
0: 79, actually. 79. I interviewed him for this in 78, but it was after the academic year in 79. I finished that out and I started in July of 1979.
1: So you were, what was your title?
0: Chief Engineer.
1: Chief Engineer. So you spent the rest of your career at Seves, so you have become very well known for your connection design. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll come back to that though. What advice would you give to students now that are ready to embark on a career in structural engineering? Would your advice be different for them? Uh, for a mainframe designer relative to someone who's interested in, st- in specializing. No, in, in I don't think,
0: I, I wouldn't, wouldn't be any different, no matter what branch of engineering or whatever else they might be interested in, in, in going into. I think my advice would be to, especially in a technical subject or a scientific subject, to understand what's going on. No, don't just go into classes to get a grade. I know you might have to do that, and, and fine, if you can get a grade and you need it, you know, for a scholarship or something, fine, but you need to understand. You Need to know why, not just the how of what's going on. And the sooner you can pick something that you really like, the better off you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Plenty of people go through and they they don't like any of it. And so instead of going into engineering, they go and get a an M what's it a an MBA MBA and they they go into business
2: mm-hmm.
0: or something like that. But if you're really interested in the technical subject, to me, if you understand how things work, I mean, you really understand it, you'll be able to do fairly well at it, and you'll enjoy it, too. You'll understand the, the why of what happens. When I was an undergraduate, I can't say that I really was that way. I mean, once I got squared away and interested in doing it, I tried to understand the why, but I also was well aware that I had to know how to do it to, to get good grades. And I think there are some guys that <clears throat> were in my class that were that got better grades than me, but I don't know that they understood the, the why of a lot of this stuff. So my advice is, Pick something you like and try to be as good at it as you can. As you
1: can. So you're a structural engineer at a fabricating company. Uh, Your brother, Charlie, is a well-known design engineer. Um, What's Thanksgiving dinner like at the Thorntons?
0: Well, I would say that most of the time it's got really nothing to do with business. (laughs) We kind of twit each other about, you know, what we've done that sort of thing, but most of the time it's a it's a really pleasant camaraderie, I would say. I think that I never expected to go on for a PhD, but the interviews that I took after a bachelor's degree, I went to places where I came out of there even before I left, I said things like to the what was then the personnel manager and is now called a human resources person.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know what I wanna do, but I know what I don't want to do. <laughs> I don't wanna to come to work here. Goodbye. <laughs> and so I was submitting applications to various graduate schools. I, there was a professor at Case that came and interviewed, gave a seminar, and I submitted an application to them, and they, I got a teaching fellowship. I tried to get one also at Lehigh. I don't know what happened there, but I never, never did hear back from them. I, I was told I was going to, but I never did hear. So I just went to Case mm-hmm. and decided to go there because I didn't really like any of my job interviews. If I got a master's, maybe I'd do better. But once I got there, I liked it so much that I just stayed on. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and got the PhD and my brother Charles he decided to go he's younger than me he's a year behind me he decided he was going for a master's degree too and I really think and I don't know I think this is true that (laughs) when he heard that I was gonna go on for a PhD well I'm gonna do that too (laughs) (laughs) and he told me that Lev Zetlin the the guy that he worked for that owned the company said what do you want to do that for I'm not paying you any more money for it you know you don't need it you've got everything you need but Charlie said I'm gonna do it anyway and, I mean, he's never looked back. The fact that he's a Ph.D. has opened a lot of doors for business and that sort of thing. Yeah. And it, it has for me, too. You know, it's sort of, a, in a way, the ultimate credential in, yes. this, in this business and mm-hmm. engineering. But, of course, there are Ph.D.s and Ph.D.s, too. There are some that get a Ph.D. and basically retire and never do anything else. And, I, I mean, I could have retired at Clarkson with tenure, mm-hmm. you know, and just taught courses for the, for the rest of my life. But I don't want to do that. I want to do something worthwhile. I, I mean, teaching's worthwhile. But sure. I wanted to do something. I just wanted to, to do something that was beyond just academics.
1: Well, I'm pretty sure that you have.
0: There's, all, there's an old saying that those that can do and those that can't teach. Teach. I don't know that that's true. But it's when you're a teacher and somebody says that you say, "Oh, wait a minute. I don't know if I. I don't know if I could make it on the outside." Yeah. And part of my idea was to try to make it on the outside, and I did.
1: And you did. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it'll be interesting, Um, you'll have to have your brother listen to this and and we'll see what he thinks about if you really did goad him into getting his Ph.D. So we're conducting this interview in Chicago at the manuals committee meeting. Last October, at the last Hmm. manuals committee meeting, you turned over your role as chair of the committee. How many years had you been chair of the manuals committee?
0: 26 years. 26 years. Long time. Long
1: time. Do you know how many manuals have come out? Under your leadership?
0: Well, knowing that this question was coming, I did a little list here. (laughs) I came up with, I think, ten. Ten. It may have been more than that, but at least ten. And, and AISC gave me a plaque back in October that it had them all listed.
1: So you started with the first LRFD.
0: Started with the first LRFD in 1984. I believe I was I was chairman at that point, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and
1: then we ju- and you finished up with the 14th edition that, right, that came out. The
0: 14th out. edition just uh, recently. And all, everything in between was done under my chairmanship of the uh, manual. So
1: for everybody that's listening, that includes the beloved Green Book, it, <laughs> the 9th edition. The beloved ASD.
0: Green Book, <laughs> the ninth edition, it includes the 13th mm-hmm. A- LRFD, which is probably one of the better books because it brings together mm-hmm. LRFD and ASD and, and really shows you that the underlying principles on the strength side are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's different is a resistance factor, less than one for LRFD, and a safety factor that's bigger than one for ASD. But other than that, the formulas are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And that, that's gone a long way to kind of uniform how people think about the way this stuff is done. There was a time, let's say with the ninth edition, that people felt that, well, it's elastic. So if you proposed to do any kind of a plastic analysis, it was anathema. But as soon as the Let's say the first edition, LRFD never was used much, but the second edition in the early 90s, the Silver Book, if I wanted to do some plastic analysis there, they say, oh yeah, sure, LRFD is plastic. Yeah, they use Z for the beam flexure, and they use that, you know, instead of S, like in the ninth edition. But really, really, the 13th edition shows that you get basically the same results, Mm -hmm. except for what I said, resistance factors on one side and safety factors on the other side.
1: So do you have a favorite? Is that your favorite?
0: I would say the 13th is probably the the culmination of the manuals that I've been involved with. The 14th, up just so a little bit better, but that's got some more stuff in it. But the, the 13th is. I like the 13th because it, it brought together LRFD and AST under a single cover. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, goes a long way to help engineers understand that the methodology of LRFD and ASD, except for these factors I mentioned, is basically the same. Mm-hmm. That, that ASD is not elastic design any more than LRFD is elastic design. And if you think about it, if you go back to ASD for flexure, we had a factor of safety that was 0.66. That's actually the reciprocal of the factor of safety, but there was a factor of 0.66 EPS of Y for flexure. Y being the yield stress. And that pretty much gives you the same thing as, let's say, 0.6, current reciprocal of the factor of safety, times F sub Y times Z instead of times S. You'd have 0.66 times F sub Y times S, the elastic section modulus, or you'd have about 0.6 times F sub Y times Z, the plastic section modulus. And the difference between those is not very much, Mm -mm. as my interviewer knows, right? Yes. So, I mean, that was never elastic. ASD was, well, it wasn't elastic in my time anyway. From seventh, eighth edition, seventh or eighth edition on, pretty much the same. I don't know what it was way back in the fifth edition, which was what I had as an undergraduate, but I haven't looked at it since then. That's <laughs> like fifty years ago.
1: So do you think that the thirteenth edition was the most challenging that you put together because it, it brought the two back together, or was there another one that was more
2: challenging?
0: I don't think that any one of them was any more challenging than any any other one. There's always issues that have to be addressed. I can't remember what they all were, but every time a manual comes out, there has to be ways to deal with the various provisions of the specification, the various uh, paragraphs of the specification which have changed. And the manual committee and the manual is an interpretation, hopefully accurately, accurately interpreting what the specification requirements are. Mm -hmm. I don't think that any one of them was any more challenging than another one. I just like the 13th because it brings the two together.
1: I understand that you've always been adamant about the binding on the manual. Why is that?
0: Because the manual is an expensive book. It's a book that in the past had to last for 10 years. It was pretty much a 10-year cycle for AISC. I know it's less than that now, five or six. But all of the good textbooks back in the 50s and 60s had sewn and signature bindings, the proper binding. A lot of textbooks now and books you buy, any novels that you buy at a bookstore, they all have these. One of the brand names was the perfect binding, which is sort of like, because it's garbage, let's call it perfect. It's basically a telephone book binding the what you'd see in a paperback, where the pages are all just glued in. It's a very, apparently, inexpensive way to, to produce a book. And I don't know that any textbooks these days are produced with any kind of a, of a binding other than that. I mean, McGraw-Hill, I've got chapters in two or three or four McGraw-Hill books and every one of them has got a so-called perfect binding. And if you try to open up that book flat on your desk, you'll probably crack the binding and the pages will all fall out. I think I think that's totally unacceptable. When we started on the manual when I started on the manual back in the in the eighties, there was a move afoot to just to go with that kind of a binding because it's cheaper. And at that time, I don't know what the prices would be now, but say the ninth edition, at that time, the difference in cost between having a sewn-in signature proper binding and a and a plastic perfect binding was $3 a book.
1: Well, that's hardly worth it. It's
0: hardly worth it. No. I mean, if you're going to pay $120 bucks for a McGraw-Hill book, a handbook, yeah. and it's got that kind of binding on it, you can't open it. You know, you try to open it, and it doesn't stay open. Mm-hmm. And if you try to make it stay open, the chances are you're going to break the binding and pages are going to fall out. I personally would not buy one of those books. I've got them because I've written chapters, so I get them gratis. But I'm not going to spend 120 bucks for a book that's not going to stand up. Yeah. I've got an edition of Salmon and Johnson that was published in 1970. It is just as good now as it was, and it's been used for two or three courses teaching it, and I've been using it as a reference ever since. It's like a 1970 or 71, the first edition. For our company library, we've got newer editions of that book, second, third, fourth editions. They've all got this new kind of binding, and they all fall apart. Mm-hmm. The pages <laughs> fall out. You, know, they, you might as well buy yourself a three-ring binder or something and punch holes in it and stick it in that. That's ludicrous.
1: So. I would agree. As much as the manual gets used I'm sure everybody that uses it is glad that we still do it that way.
0: I have a 1923 Structural Engineer's Handbook, McGraw-Hill, Milo Ketchum, that my father had. And it's just as good today as it was in 1923. Yeah. That's why, as far as I'm concerned, the manual should have a good binding.
1: Well, hopefully that tradition is going to continue. And why is it the size it is? Why is it a 6x9?
0: Why is it a 6x9?
1: Did you want it to be a 6x9? It's
0: always been a 6x9. It's got nothing to do with me.
1: That you could have changed it as chair. I
0: could have probably tried to change it. I don't know if I would have been successful. But I think six by nine is a nice size. I know that everybody else has changed an eight and a half by eleven. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, structural engineering journal at ASCE used to be uh, six by nine. Now it's an eight and a half by eleven. Yeah. Double columns of stuff on there. It's not easy to read. Right. I think the reason why everybody's going to eight and a half eleven by eleven is because of the Xerox machines or printing machines you oh, know? Yeah. it's easier to copy
1: yeah well you're right I like the six by nine myself
0: I like the six by nine it's it's, it's easier to handle and there is another thing this is sort of like esoteric baby but there's something called a golden section mm-hmm. the golden section is uh, something that's used in architecture and goes all the way back to the days of Pythagoras okay and it's dividing a line into two parts and basically you, the the red The ratio of the long to the short is 1.6 or so to 1. This ratio is used in a lot of architecture, like the Parthenon in uh, Athens. Mm -hmm. The width of the building versus its height is about 1.6 to 1. It's called a golden section. A 9 by 6 book is about, doesn't quite make that, but it's it's closer than 8.5 by 11. (laughs)
2: It's very pleasing. It just
0: it has the a pleasing dimension that's yes. what I'm trying to say.
1: And I would agree. I think It's it a, it's
0: it's it's sort of a to me it's a it's a pleasing dimension. I can just pick up this one here and it to me it looks like it's right.
1: Yes, I would agree. Uh, What do you see as the role of the manual versus the role of the specification?
0: The specification makes the rules. The manual interprets the rules and provides aids for engineers. That's the basic difference between the two, the specification and the manual. The specification is an ANSI document now. The manual is not. The specification has letter ballots. It's got all the requirements that ANSI dictates. The manual is still a lot freer than that. We do have ballots, but we don't have necessarily written ballots and all that. That's part of it. The the next thing is that the specification doesn't cover everything. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff in the manual that goes way beyond the specification. For instance, I mean, the design of bracing connections. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the specification that tells you how to do it, but there is a way to do it in the manual. The specification says, prying action shall be considered, but there's nothing to tell you how to consider it. The manual has a procedure that's pretty darn good, I think, that's been in it since the 9th edition, or even the 8th edition, there was a version of it in the 8th edition as well, that gives you a pretty optimal way to do that. And those are just two items, but there's many, many other items that are in the manual that go beyond what's in the specification. But the the manual tries very diligently never to do anything that would be contradictory, so contradict what the what the specification requires.
1: So for the first time ever with the fourteenth edition manual is being offered in electronic format. Do you see the E-manual as a replacement for the printed book or just as a supplement?
0: I would say I see it as a supplement. I think it would be nice to have it on my computer. Not that I'm a 21st century guy, but when this thing is available, I will have it on my computer, and it will be a lot nicer to take that to meetings than to carry the book. So I think its I think it will be nice.
1: What other AISC committees are you a member
0: of? I'm a member of the Specification Committee. I have formerly been a member of the Code of Standard Practice Committee. There's a committee called the Technical Activities Committee, which I think I was a member of strictly because I was a chairman of a committee, the Manual Committee, I probably won't be a member of that anymore. That's it, I'm not not a member of any other committees of AISC. I have been a member of, of AWS. The 1.1 in the past, and I'm still a member of the RCSC, the Bolt Council, a member of that committee. Mm-hmm. That's about it, I think.
1: So, how did you get involved with AISC committee work? Where did that start for you?
0: Well, Surveys always had the commitment to support AISC because AISC is the steel industry's trade organization. Not all fabricators are members of AISC, but Surveys has always been a member, as far as I know. And the idea was that if we're going to be a member, we ought to try to influence a little bit. What's going on? And when I took this job in 1979, we had no representation whatsoever on AISC. And my boss, Ron Shaw, felt that I ought to get involved in these committees, which was great as far as I was concerned, because that's what I wanted to do. I told you earlier that I spent a year with them in 1974-75 at a division in northern New York. I commuted basically from where I lived near Clarkson. But that, what they were interested in there, was pretty much what's called quality assurance. We were involved in nuclear, and they wanted somebody that could deal with engineers and in quality assurance issues. I really wasn't that interested in that. But when I took the job full time in 1979, it, that was part of it. That I was in, I was responsible for the company quality assurance manual, and the first committee that I got on was the code of standard practice committee because that really involves the. Co- the practice of fabrication and involved things like quality control and uh, erection tolerances and fabrication tolerances and all that kind of stuff, which was kind of interesting. But my real interest lay in something more technical than that. And so, I don't know, I can't remember exactly how I got involved with the manual committee, but Bob Desquay was the secretary. And back in those days, 1980 or so now, every chairman of every standing committee, which is what the manual committee is of AISC, not an ad hoc committee, but a standing committee that's been around for Forty years or better, maybe even longer than that, had to be a member of the board of directors of AISC. And our chairman was uh, the, I think, the owner or some high up person in a company in Texas called Capital Steel, called, named Jerry Emerson. Jerry Emerson was like a Buddha in our meetings. He, he really, I don't think, was that interested in the technical aspects of it, but he kept an eye on things, and every once in a while, he'd crack a joke and. And, and crack everybody up. It was a great committee. There were a half a dozen of us. That's all uh-huh. in 1980. There was me, Bob Disquey, who was the, the secretary. Jerry Emerson, who was the, the chairman, but really not particularly active in the technical side of things. Two other fabricators members. I don't know their. I don't remember their names. Uh, 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 one one guy was from American Bridge, and the other was from some Texas fabricator, and he was another jokes there every time. Every time every meeting he came to, he'd be telling jokes the whole time. Really a funny guy. And a guy that used to be the chief engineer of American Bridge called Colin Harris. He was not a member of the committee, but he was a consultant. At this point, we were writing the book Engineering for Steel Construction, the big red book, eight and a half by eleven. Okay, <laughs> we don't have all six by nine. This is eight and a half by 11, 1984, and I was very active in the production of that book. And I think that Bob Desquay felt that that I was a really productive committee member, which I was. And I got, I guess at that time, since I was probably the most active member, he must have recommended me to be chairman of the committee, because it was right after that that I became chairman of that committee.
1: So you were the workhorse, so you got to be chairman.
0: Right. Right. I mean, I did a lot of the work in that that book and tried to keep it to be as economic as possible which is always the goal that I've had. I mean, there's many ways to do things, but if we can do it the most efficient and economical way, that's the way I've always tried to go.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, at AISC we greatly appreciate our volunteers. We wouldn't be able to do anything without all of our volunteers. And you've been a volunteer for a long time and on our committees, and it's rare to see you miss a meeting that we hold. Um, What makes you so dedicated in spending your time on AISC activities? Well,
0: if you're going to be on a committee you've got to participate. I mean, you can't be there just to be, just to to say you're on a committee there are maybe some people that, that do that but generally they don't last that long they get you know they're on <laughs> and they're off also I mean surveys paid the freight for this and we were paying my salary and I get paid I don't get, get didn't get paid to go to the meetings but I get paid my expenses to go and I I mean I my salary was continuous I wasn't doing productive work I was working for at basically for AISC to do this stuff if a company's going to do that you want to pay them back
1: mm-hmm. yeah well, I think you have. Um, Most engineers recognize you for your work on vertical brace connection design, uh, the uniform force method, and bolt prying models. Can you say a few words regarding your motivation for the development of these design procedures?
0: Yeah, back in the 70s, let's say bracing, particularly vertical bracing, back in the 70s, there was no recognized method to do this. And there we were getting screwy results. This is one of the year I spent at Northern Division on a sabbatical. We got really screwy ways to do this that the engineer wanted us to do. And since we really didn't have a big engineering presence, whatever they wanted they got. That's what we got. That's what they got. That that was part of it. So I started really working on this particular item, just was interested in it back about I would say 1975 and did not come up with the uniform force method at that point but in the 80s when I took the job full time we had dealings with various engineers some of the bigger ones I'm not gonna mention any names but some of them had their own ways to do this to do a bracing connection which were I thought were pretty good so I adopted the routine of one of these big structural engineers and we did a job using their procedure. It had some flaws, but it, it figured if ABC Engineering, this, this big company, does it, it's probably going to be acceptable, okay? So we did all these what we call P sheets, which are kind of connection proposals for their approval approval of engineering, uh, DEF, or somebody else. And it came back saying, This is uh, not acceptable. Why? Well, you didn't satisfy equilibrium for this particular aspect here. Said, But ABC does it this way. And uh, DEF, this. So basically, we don't care what ABC says. We do it a different way, and uh, this is the kind of thing that we were getting into. There were, there was, most of these were industrial engineers, power plant designers. They had procedures to do these these bracing connections and none of them satisfied all the requirements that I think equilibrium, lower bound theorem and all that, but they came close. And then American Bridge, they had a procedure that I don't know who accepted except for American Bridge, but basically all they did was to take the vertical component of the brace and design the gusset, say, to the column for the vertical component and take the horizontal brace component and design the connection of the gusset to the beam for those and that's it. Mm -hmm. There was no consideration of the beam to column, no consideration of eccentricities, no consideration of equilibrium, no consideration of the work point location. It could have been gravity axes, it could have been at the corner of the gusset, there would be no difference. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I've
0: tried some of those too and got shot down every time. So it probably was in about 1983, 84, that AISC, in conjunction with AISI, what's that? AISI, American, Inst- American
1: Iron and, Steel, Iron and, and Steel.
0: Steel Institute, contracted a research project with Ralph Richard, and to some extent Radar Pioholder, who was there at this time at the University of Arizona. And Ralph came up with uh, some ways to do this. It, it was pretty good, really. But in the course of that research, he produced all kinds of force distributions on various kinds of gussets at various bevel angles. And just looking at his data, the idea of the uniform force method was generated by, by Ralph's data. And I think I've said that in many places where I've written about this, that the that Ralph did not suggest it, but his data surely did, so he should get some credit for it. But I took that data and 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 basically produced what's now called the uniform force method. Back in those days, I called it Model 3 because we had Model 1, Model (laughs) 2, Model 3, Model 4, Model 5, Model 6, I think we had 8 of them. That is not
1: quite as catchy. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All of these models were what I called then equilibrium models. In other words, every aspect of the connection, the gusset, the beam, and the column, if you took free-body diagrams of pieces of all those things, every one of them was in equilibrium. But some of them were better than others. And I wrote a paper in 1991 that kind of looked at all of these different models and tried to come up with the one that came closest to predicting the actual behavior. And of those, the uniform force method, I think, came out to be the best, but there were a couple of others. That were close, but some of the others had limitations. They were not universally applicable. Some of them would work really good for a column flange connection, but not so hot for a column web connection. Uh, I think uh, one of them didn't satisfy equilibrium, a moment equilibrium up the gusset, so it had to be modified. Uh, There was another one called the truss analogy method that really was would be a very expensive connection. In 1991, I think, after writing this paper, AISC, the manual committee, with Bob Disquay, we had a special meeting in Kansas City to pick the one that we're going to put in the manual. And of course, I was touting the, the uniform force method, and Dave Ricker was touting the, what he called the parallel force method, and uh, somebody else, I don't want to mention any names, was touting the truss analogy method. Ralph Richard, I don't believe, was at that meeting. I think he was invited, but he didn't didn't make it. The outcome of that meeting was a kind of a white paper that decided that the uniform force method was the way to go. I don't know that it was even called that then, but Model 3 was the way to go. And that then was first incorporated into an AISC manual in in a book that was a composite book called Connections for the ninth edition and the 1st edition LRFD. That was probably, oh, 1992 or something like that, 1991, about the same time as as this meeting. It was very shortly thereafter that that manual was produced. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the Uniform Force Method was to have a method that was unassailable, that nobody could say that this didn't dot the I's and cross the T's. Has anybody
1: ever been able to say that? No. 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 Well, there may he-
0: be people that don't want to do it this way, which that's okay. Yeah. But they can't say that it's wrong. They can't shoot me down right. by saying that I failed to consider equilibrium in this instance or that instance. So anyway, that was the genesis of that. The uh, frying action, which is uh, another thing you mentioned, mm-hmm. the 8th edition manual basically had the model from a, a researcher in Holland uh, whose name I can't think of right now. But it's in the book by Fisher and Struick. That's where it first came from in 1974. In 1978 or 9, the Red Book, the 8th edition manual, had that procedure in it, but the procedure was flawed because the same equation was used to calculate two different things, and it gave you close to the answer, but that was the impetus to come up with a way that took these formulas in the Bolt Guide, the Fisher and Struick book, and try to optimize them, to come up with a procedure that gave you either the maximum load that you could carry for a given thickness of bolts and all the rest of it, or the minimum thickness that you would need say, of a flange or a clip angle to carry a specified load and that's what's in the manual now that one was in there since the ninth edition on so it's kind of an optimal method in a sense that it it gives you the best possible result i mean the, the greatest capacity out of the given hardware the least hardware for the given load
1: one of your more notable presentations is entitled connections the last bastion of rational design in a nutshell, what's the primary message of this presentation to practicing engineers?
0: That practicing engineers ought not to be completely reliant on software that somebody else develops. They need to know what they're doing based on first principles. Connection design, not the simple stuff, double-clips and secure connections, but complex connection design. There is no software to design connections, therefore the title the last bastion of rational design because you can have a really complex structure and you're probably going to be using from the foundation to the roof, some software package that's very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. But do you really understand it? Do you understand how it works? Could you do it yourself if you were on a desert island? Right. And the answer is no. It's
1: probably no. So for connection design, people still have to do it. They don't have a choice because there's no software That's to That's right.
0: It. You have to do it. You've got to understand the basic, basic principles of structural mechanics to do connection design.
1: Mm-hmm. You're known for applying theory to solve practical problems in a very creative manner. Uh, can you explain your process?
0: I don't know that I can explain the process. You know, it's sort of a... A synergistic kind of thing I mean you the more you work in an area the more you have a feel for what can be done or might be done and the more problems you solve the more things that you've created the more ideas you have to produce the more you do, the more insights you have as to how things work, and then you can utilize those insights in areas that you never thought of when you had the insight in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's kind of neat, it's kind of neat to be able to do that. Yeah. I think that probably in almost every field things work that way. Mm-hmm. People start with some ideas and all of a sudden the light goes on You say, oh yeah, I can use this theory to do that. Mm-hmm.
1: Looking back on all of your many accomplishments, how do you think notable theorists such as Timoshenko, Young and Gear would view your application.
0: Well, as far as Timoshenko goes, I don't think that the kind of stuff that I do is in the same category as what he does.
2: Okay.
0: It's more more basic. I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't. I wouldn't want to try to put myself in the same the same category as Timoshenko. I mean, he was doing stuff that was state of the art a hundred years ago, yeah. with a lot less information than we have now. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of the stuff I've done will stand the test of time. Yeah. I don't know, but i wouldn't I wouldn't <coughs> compare myself to Timoshenko. and I don't know about gear. gear is a sort of co-author, but I'm not sure what what gears done on his own, but i don't I just don't know
1: well in a hundred years they'll probably still be talking about the uniform Force.
0: unless some better way to do it comes up exactly yeah. so
1: yeah word has it that you're an accomplished sailor? How important do you think it is for professional engineers to excel at something other than engineering?
0: I don't think it's particularly important that you do. I mean, it's a matter of what you you like to do. I like to be out in the sun and the wind. Sailing is kind of primitive in a way. It's like first principles that I like to use that term a lot, as opposed to having a powerboat or something. When you're sailing, I don't know how important it is, Margaret, but it's very nice to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And if you've never sailed, you can't appreciate what it's like to just shut the bloody engine off and let the wind take you where you want to go mm-hmm. it's just have you done it? Have you done any sailing? No, I haven't. Well, I would recommend it.
1: I would like to, yeah.
0: It's just very nice. It's yeah. very pleasant.
1: Uh, is it true that conversations usually pause at 20 minutes past the hour, 20 minutes of the well, hour, and on the
0: hour? All I can say is try it.
1: Okay. I've never heard that before, but now I'm going to watch out for it. Try it, yeah.
0: You'll be surprised. I There's a lull in the conversation. Look at your watch. It'll be 20 after, 22, or on the hour. Okay. Don't ask me why. I don't know. Okay.
1: So you don't know why. That's just, Not, no just idea. the way it is. The way it is. Okay, well, I'm gonna. It doesn't always
0: work, but it happens more often than not. Okay. You'd be surprised. All
1: right. Uh, I understand that you're a big fan of Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Yes. What is it about these books that captures you? The
0: writing is absolutely gorgeous. The okay. prose is almost poetry. If you get into it and you start reading, there's a cadence. It's just glorious writing, I think. Yeah. And the story is really good too. You put the two together and you can't beat it. Back in the 70s when my kids were young, I read the whole thing to them. You know, after dinner, instead of watching the box, uh, I would read it maybe for an hour,
2: mm-hmm.
0: starting at the beginning and all the way to the end. And I don't know if I read The Hobbit, but I read The Lord of the Rings. I don't like The Hobbit that much. It's,
2: <laughs> <You it's>, don't? <laughs>
0: I don't like The Hobbit that much. It's okay. But I think The Lord of the Rings is Tolkien's classic.
1: Absolutely. I, I read. I've, I'm a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, and I hadn't read The Hobbit, and I just read it last month, and it was good. Yeah, it's all right. It's good. It, it's just much more simplistic.
0: It's much much more simplistic, and it was written more for you know as a kind of a kid story. Yeah, yeah, for children. I think the uh, Lord of the Rings maybe started out that way, but it it got to be a lot more serious than that.
1: Absolutely, it it definitely evolved into quite an epic. Uh, some have said that structural engineering is as much an art as it is a science. What are your thoughts on that? I
0: regard? think it is as much of an art as a science.
1: I'd say, especially when you're doing connection design.
0: Well, just <laughs> even coming up with the configuration of a building, yeah. or, or trying to come up, trying to work with what the architects think it should look like. But connection design itself, that there's many, many ways to put something together, mm-hmm. and but there's probably one or two best ways. And so I think that's where the art comes in. Once you pick a way, it's science, right, right to make it work.
1: And my final question is, what would you say is your greatest professional achievement to date?
0: What would I say is my greatest professional achievement? Well, I suppose it would be the development of the bracing design called the Uniform Force Method.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's uh, kind of elegant. You look at it, you like, why didn't somebody think of this before? That's one of the problems with it. I think it's really, okay, yeah, so what? Big deal, right? Statics. But nobody else thought of it before. say
2: nobody
1: came up with it before, so it is a big deal. It is a big deal.
0: I think. I think it's a, I think it's a neat way to do it. Yeah. Sooner or later, there'll be a better way, maybe. But, but I think it's, uh, at the present time, the, the, definitely the state of the art. As far as I know, it's being used in other countries as well. So that's why I'm international.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, it's been a pleasure. I'm so glad we finally got to do this.
0: Likewise, Margaret. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction.
1: Join us next month when my guest will be Carol Drucker of Drucker's Idell Structural Engineers in Naperville, Illinois.
0: For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.